Welcome to The Alchemy of Business Show with your host, Steve Rogers. The Alchemy of Business Show is a podcast that mixes practical, actionable business solutions with soulful insights for anyone seeking deeper meaning in their lives and greater success in their work. Steve will be featuring purpose-driven leaders from all walks of life and getting insight into their journeys from failures to triumphs. So tune in to transition, transform, and evolve in every dimension of your business and life. And now your host of the Alchemy of Business show, Steve Rogers. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in, whether you're listening on audio on iTunes, or maybe you're on Roku, or maybe you popped in on YouTube TV. However you got here, I appreciate you being here on the Alchemy of Business show. We are always here talking about finding ways to make wiser decisions, creating greater profits in your life and in your business, but also finding higher purpose and meaning in what you're doing with your life and contributing to others. And I can't think of any other guest here that does this uh, by a 100 times that in so many things that he does in his life to date and is still doing. Mr. Gerald Jamalis here is a serial entrepreneur, a film producer. He's a philanthropist for so many different things and so many different things that he's been involved in. He was the founder of uh, Riotech Computer Products, a revenue printer company that was this retailer that he, in 2001, was awarded the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award for Business Service. He also since his four is a successful career in the film industry. So not only was he a very successful entrepreneur of taking this company to new heights that that no one expected, but he decided he loved film. So he got into the film industry as a producer. And many of you will for sure know The Irishman, which meant he went on to garner 10 nominations at the 92nd Academy Awards. He also produced the acclaimed animated short film, If Anything Happens, I Love You, which was named the best animated short film in the 93rd Academy Awards. So anything he touches, he turns somehow into success because he's got heart and passion. You're going to find out in just a minute. In addition to his work in the tech industry, and in film, he's also a very much into being a philanthropic person in a leading way. He inspires others to do this with decades of experience of helping those from recovering from alcohols and addiction. He has a very personal story about this. And he also has been a very big proponent of wildlife conservation in Kenya, particularly in efforts of giving back to the black rhino. So how many times have you heard about somebody as an Academy Award winner, entrepreneur, does major charity work and also helps rhinos? Come on, who else are you going to have? So let's meet Jerry here. Jerry, let's pop on and have you on the show. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Steve, for that wonderful introduction. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, thank you. I'm just delighted to have recently met you in recent months to a common friend of us, Joshua Earp. And I know that you have many other businesses that you're doing now. And I know he's helping you on one of those. But when he connected us, you and I instantly hit it off because we had so many things in common, not only from our early days of young men doing things that uh, maybe challenged us more than we should have, but also in our love of Think and Grow Rich and self-development, et cetera. So I was fascinated to find out about your early story. So for many of those that may not know yet about your story, can you tell us how you as a young man started out and uh, what your original vision was and how addiction got in your way in the early years of your life before we jump into some of your big successes you've had? Well, I'm delighted to share with you the uh, journey that I've had with my life. My life started out, Steve, with a lot of early life suffering. I was put into a foster home at the age of two and we, my brother, and I lived in this wonderful, they actually wonderful people, the uh, Crandall family in Pacoima, California. My parents divorced when I was two and I was born in Yakima, Washington. So my mother came down to Los Angeles and got a job at the Knickerbocker Toy Factory. She left us up in Yakima.
Yakima, Washington. And when she had enough money saved up, she brought us to Los Angeles and put us in a foster home because she couldn't really take care of us. She wasn't equipped. She was very young. And so we crash landed in this uh, foster home. And it was actually a traumatic experience, Steve, because we were told my brother and I to go out into the backyard and look for the bunny rabbit. So we went out to the backyard. There was no bunny rabbit. We came back in and my mother was gone. So it was a few days of crying and trying to uh, figure out what had happened. Uh, We were all of a sudden in the stranger's home. It turned out that those two individuals fell in love with my brother and I, and they were very supportive and it was very structured. My foster father, Ted Crandall, worked at Lockheed Corporation. They were both from Nebraska. So they brought an element of consistency and structure to our lives that uh, we had not had up until we lived with them. My father, I will add this, was a World War II hero. He was in the OSS. He was an incredibly gifted uh, man, but he was also not equipped to parent. He was a captain uh, stationed. Can you imagine being, Steve, 19 years old and parachuting into the, the jungles of Burma behind the Japanese lines? And the OSS later became the Central Intelligence Agency. So he was involved. He was a pioneer in guerrilla warfare. And he was one of the, he wrote two novels upon completion of his military service. He went to a writer's colony, Loney Handy, this woman who had mentored James Jones, who wrote an incredible book called From Here to Eternity. And so he read about her in Life Magazine, went to her writer's colony in Indiana and wrote two uh, best-selling novels. The first one was Never So Few, which was made into a film at MGM with Frank Sinatra, Steve McQueen, Gina Lola Brigida, Peter Lawford. And the second book that he wrote, Steve, was called Go Naked in the World. And that was also an MGM film with uh, Gina Lola Brigida again and Tony Franciosa and Ernest Borgnine. Now, the challenge for my brother and I is we never knew my father because he went on and he actually was having difficulty making the child support payments. My mom had to sue to make those payments. And then he tragically died at 35. Mm. So that early life was very challenging. And then we moved back in with my mom when uh, I was eight years old. My brother was nine. We moved back in with her. She was a single mom, became a latchkey kid, uh, became a juvenile delinquent, just kind of ran the streets. We didn't have a lot of resources. So life was was challenging at that juncture in my life. And so I had a lot of struggle. How old were you when you were running the streets like that time? Were you like in your early teens? Yeah. I started out, you know, 9, 10, 11. I was good in school in my early, when I was living with the Crandalls out in Pacoima, and then the wheels kind of fell off and I became uh, kind of rejected education. And I started running the streets really at 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. And in fact, something magical happened at 13. I had a feeling of anxiety and not really, I didn't really feel like I fit in anywhere. And there was some older boys in an alleyway and they had a, a bottle of this Red Mountain wine. And I don't know if any of you out there in the uh, audience have ever heard of that. I don't know if uh, a grape ever touched this stuff. It was $1.49 for a full gallon. You can imagine uh, that's a tremendous yield on your invested capital, $1.49 for not a half gallon, a full gallon. And I took a big swig of that and I could almost, I almost tossed my cookies. I almost couldn't keep it down. And, uh, but something happened, a magical, it was transformative. I immediately felt at one with the universe and that began my journey of uh, alcoholism and addiction, which lasted from the age of 13 until 26, when I basically became homeless, uh, unemployable, and suicidal. You can't get much further down the food chain than that. Yeah. And uh, the addiction just blew 
up my life. And that's when I made a turning point. Uh, I was very fortunate to get involved with a group of people who helped me to attack that addiction head on and to get involved in recovery. And from that point forward, Steve, if, if, you, if you were to do a graph of my life, it looked like a bad penny stock. <laughs> and then at 26, and then it as just I, picked, yeah? yeah, I started to move onward and upward. I was so grateful and so fortunate because I was really literally dying uh, from addiction and alcoholism at that point in my life. Wow, that's young. I know I, I, you and I have that in common. I haven't had a drink in 19 years. I didn't stop as soon as early as you did. How did you feel at that time when you got help? Did you know, even from a little kid with this troubled, challenged bringing that you had, that you were being called to something greater from a young age? Or did that come after your awakening of getting sober that you knew there was something calling you to greater? Like, I mean, not many people can do and say what you have done in your life. Did you know, we didn't, we did not, didn't know what it was, I'm sure, but did you have this calling or did that come as a aha after you were clean and sober? You know, in my early life, Steve, I always felt that I had a sleeping giant within me. And I think all people, all of us have a sleeping giant within us. I couldn't access it, though. And even I was aspiring to your point. I got interested in hypnosis. There was an individual by the name of Gil Boyne who had a hypnosis class at 19 and 20 years old because I had a lot of self hatred, a lot of self-rejection, a lot of fears. I was afraid of everything. And so I pursued hypnosis as a means to try to get out of this fear mode that I had and the anxiety that I felt. And when you have early life trauma, and make no mistake about it, I was traumatized by being dropped off at that foster home. I didn't have a lot of clarity about my direction with my life. But to your point, I always felt that there was an infinite intelligence that if I could tap into it, I could express more of that sleeping giant. But with the addiction and the headwinds that I experienced with uh, the alcoholism and addiction, I really could never manifest much of anything because I was always getting high every day. My objective, uh, if I was uh, skilled at anything, it was uh, going out, finding things to change my consciousness. And uh, it really was difficult to express anything. But to your point, I always felt that if I could just get on the beam, that I could make something out of my life. And it wasn't until I had that awakening at 26 a moment of clarity, if you will. And I realized that if I continued on the path that I was on, I probably would have been dead within a year. I had hepatitis A, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. I was really, as a human being, as a going concern, I was uh, pretty much bankrupt in every area. So I was very fortunate to be introduced to the spiritual principles that revolutionized my life and enabled me to go on a track of positivity, to transmute the negative into positivity. It was not easy. It was a struggle. And even at 70 years of age today, I still work. I'm still a work in progress, still each day trying to do a little bit better each day. In fact, a simple philosophy, Steve, if you study some of the the great teachers that are out there today and just try to, as an individual, do a little bit better each day, it's phenomenal what can happen in your life. Well, you've done a little bit better each day and and accomplished phenomenal things. So I'm so glad you allowed someone to help you on the intervention of getting help. I also was, you know, uh, at the point that I'm 
my life was starting to crumble back when I was I was climbing the corporate ladder. I had you know suit and tie on, but I was a functioning alcoholic and I was starting to deteriorate my life around me. So by getting help and asking others for help and getting into a program, I also realized I had that sleeping giant inside of me. And I've talked to a lot of people that have either alcoholism or addiction. My wife's in the addiction space. She runs women sober living homes. And I think that part of our human condition, we all are traumatized in some standpoint. And many people have different levels of that trauma. Your trauma is definitely more intense than the average human being. And you've overcome that to great odds. So I love this inspiring story of no matter where you started from, from a little child of you know being uh, parents that were not really around to the going into creating these things you've done in your life is amazing. So I know some of the things that you have been involved in with AA and also Think and Grow Rich, and you mentioned the universal principles. Are those core foundations what then went you allowed you to then go on and have the consciousness and then learn the skills to run some of these very successful companies you started and or stepped in and re rebuilt? So I want to talk about how you took that energy, you repurposed yourself. It wasn't easy, but you had a mission. And then all of a sudden you said, you know what? I'm a damn good salesman or I'm a good business guy I want to learn or I'm going to you know, do this. So how did that, you took all that energy. When did it first start transferring that you saw it start turning into some kind of monetary or quote business world success? Well, it's interesting. I At 26, I had nowhere to live. So I was literally staying on people's couches and I ended up getting a job at a, a company called Pacific Computer Products in uh, Long Beach, California. And it was an entry-level job as a salesperson. And it was a telemarketing job. It was actually a legitimate telemarketing company that was selling wideband printer ribbons for mainframe computers. This is 1977, 1978, before the uh, the PC uh, revolution. And I decided to approach that job with the idea, I'm going to be the best that I can be at that job. And so I studied Napoleon Hill, W. Clement Stone, and showed up every day. And I became, uh, after about a year, uh, the best salesman in that little company. And I called one of my mentors. I said, geez, I could do a better job if I had my own company. And I, I often say entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur, which is a fancy word for somebody who's unemployable. So I had to start my own company to get a real job. So I'll share with you because I think it's important. I saved up $7,000. I had gotten a nice little single apartment in Venice Beach, California, where we jokingly said Venice is where the debris meets the sea. <laughs> and I opened an office in Santa Monica, Steve. I decided to call the company Omni Computer Products. And the reason I called it Omni is because there was an Omni magazine at that time and there was an Omni car. And so when I called somebody on the telephone, I'd say, I'm with Omni Computer Products. I'm sure you've heard of us. And they go, yeah, I think I have heard of you. Oh yeah. And what happened was though, I was so paralyzed with fear that I burned through that $7,000 and I failed. And I failed because I would not dedicate myself to the job and I just was paralyzed with fear. So then I, I called up my mentor. He said, well, you're going to have to close down that office and you're going to have to start all over again. And I realized, Steve, that I had a fear of success. Mm. We have a fear of failure. We have a fear of success. So I had to do some inner work and eliminate those mental blocks that were preventing me from actualizing my vision. And then I put a little sign on my desk. It's the Calvin uh, Coolidge uh, uh, quote on persistence. You know, nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. The world is filled with unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education alone will not. The world is filled with educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone 
are omnipotent. Press on. And so I had that. I read that probably 100 times a day. And then I also affirmed failure is not an option. I am Mm. not going to allow these internal barriers to cripple me. And so I busted through those uh, inner demons and I started to do well. And then I opened up an office in uh, Culver City. And then I started recruiting, training, and motivating a team of sales reps. And then I realized, gosh, I'm running a business. I need to know how, I didn't know anything about a balance sheet or an income statement. So I went to UCLA and I took classes on taking a company from uh, entrepreneurship to a professionally managed company. And what I had was an open mind. And if you have an open mind and you have humility and you're willing to learn and grow, all things become possible. And I ended up hiring uh, the professor at UCLA to come in and do some consulting work for me. I ended up hiring a CPA because I had a bookkeeper. And I started moving forward in my business life. And every day was a learning experience. You talk about stress. I didn't know anything, Steve, when I started out. So I just every day I had affirmation cards. I was training my mind. I did the greatest salesman in the world, Og Mandino's wonderful book. Great work. Great work. I love that. I did that three times, Steve, three times where you you have your success list and you write this stuff out and you read that, uh, uh, those scrolls three times a day. So I, what I want to share with your audience is the importance of thought management. Yes. Of taking my mind, taking control of my mind with conviction. Because I had so much negativity. My self-talk, Steve, was so negative and so self-rejecting that I had to really work hard. I actually did some therapy work about my inner challenges and my self-loathing and started to uh, gradually, slowly but surely break through the the shackles of those old belief systems. Wow, so many golden nuggets. And we're going to take a break here. But audience listening in, I mean, I'm going to have to go back and re-listen this segment myself because his fear of success, to hear that of someone who's an Academy Award winner, a serial entrepreneur, uh, created wealth for himself, having fear of success and breaking through that, the importance of thought management, how powerful that is, and taking control of your mind with conviction. It really is, regardless of what your path is, those tools alone are so mighty and so vast. And it sounds like you really took the Think and Grow Rich book and followed it to a T and uh, the Clement Stone teachings to a T. So you're a great example that regardless of what decade we're in, that stuff always works. So listen in, everybody, stay back. We're going to hear more about Jerry's success that he's gone on. We're going to hear more about his film producing uh, explorations that he's been on. He'll continue to share some more of his wisdom. So we'll be right back on a quick break on the Alchemy of Business Show. Hello, and welcome back to the Alchemy of Business Show. We are thrilled, so thrilled today to have Jerry with us, Jerry Shamalis, who is a serial entrepreneur, a Academy Award-winning film producer, a guy with a big heart who contributes to all kinds of causes, and just a master of mastering his thoughts and then controlling his emotions and his energy into success. So, Jerry, I was just, I was, I was telling you at the break, I said, I was trying to say, okay, if I start taking notes, I'm going to be looking at the camera. <laughs> so, I, I was, uh, you and I have spoken before about this stuff, but you just always throw out such golden nuggets. So in the first segment, you were talking about how you very had a challenged childhood. You you got into some addiction issues. You found a way to overcome that through help. But then you started incorporating some of these universal principles that we were talking about in the first segment. When did you start really seeing those magnify after you said, okay, I've burned through my 7,000. 
Uh, I didn't really know much about a PL, a PNL, but you went out and you started reaching to learn about these things. You did focused learning where you needed it to help you get to the next level. And you broke through that fear. You said you had this fear of success, but somehow you got your fire burning. So let's talk about where you left off about you started attracting people, the law of you know magnetic energy that you're tracking like attracts like, and then you started accumulating this team. And then how did your team and you help then take this company to the magnitude that it got to? Well, those are really great questions. And I want to share with the the listening audience or viewing audience today that if I can make a success out of my life, virtually anybody can. If, if you have a burning desire to achieve and are willing to pay the price of admission, uh, there is a price to pay to transmute the negative into positive. But what a great opportunity that you have as an individual if you begin applying the principles that Steve and I are talking about. And one of the pivotal books for me was the great, late great Napoleon Hill and Think and Grow Rich. And then when he collaborated with W. Clement Stone and wrote what I believe is the best personal development book that I've ever read. In fact, I have a copy of it that I, uh, when I speak at USC and the undergraduate program and the graduate school, School on entrepreneurship, I do my entire talk on the 17 principles of American achievement as outlined by Napoleon Hill and W. Clement Stone in the wonderful book, Success Through a Positive Mental Attitude. And it's available on Amazon. And it's a book that I read and reread and affirm those principles. And so when I was in my business life actively with Rhinotech, I wanted to do a purpose marketing. So I hired an individual that I followed. Uh, one of the things I do is if I see success, I'll keep a file on that. I'll open up a file. There was a company called Leading Edge. And Leading Edge was the first compatible PC that was available. And for those of you that are baby boomers like myself, you'll remember when IBM came out with the PC in the early 80s, you could only buy the PC from IBM. And then a company came out with a compatible PC, Leading Edge. And they did such a brilliant job. They had the diskettes. They were called elephant diskettes. They never forget. So I kept a file on this. And there was an individual who was the creative director for Leading Edge. And that went from zero to a billion dollar company. Amazing success story. And I ended up hiring this individual who was the creative director, Roland Benzer, to help me create a brand. And we created the Rhinotech brand. And the cause marketing is we adopted the Lewa Wildlife Conservancy. Steve mentioned it at the introduction. And we helped save the rhino, the black rhino that was almost extinct. And a portion of our profits went to support the Lewa Wildlife Conservancy. And we had articles in the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Business Week, and it really just took off. It became, uh, even though it wasn't an internet phase at that juncture, it, be, it kind of went viral in the sense that here was this company that was hiring people and giving them a second chance. We hired a lot of people that were former alcoholics and drug addicts. In fact, 30% of our employees were people that we were giving a second chance to. And then on top of that, we were helping to save the rhinos. So the company uh, blew up, if you will, and we uh, combined, we got it up from zero in a one-room apartment in Venice up to $60 million in revenue, which would be uh, what I would refer to as an, an entry-level middle market company. And uh, at that juncture, uh, I ended up 
selling the company in 2006 to a private equity group. We had another company that we sold to the Japanese printer company, Oki Data, $7 billion Japanese printer company, Oki Data. And so in answer to your question, it was doing a little bit better every day, Steve, mm-hmm. and trying to keep an open mind and building a team and creating a culture in that organization to be of service. We had two sets of customers, the end user customer, which was all about customer service, and the internal customer, our team, our staff. And we got up to 350 employees in Los Angeles and 400 employees in Canada. We had 750 employees. Steve, when I was turning my life around, I couldn't uh, find my kneecaps in a dark room. I was so (laughs) confused. But all of that happened as a result of applying the types of principles that we're going over today, uh, definiteness of purpose, the mastermind, applied faith, going forward, even though you don't know how it's going to turn out, getting into positive action. And even if you don't know how you're going to get there, if you have an idea and you get into action and begin today, the pathway will show up. That's been my experience. Yeah, so true. It's the universe does start conspiring towards your success, as Paulo Coelho says, and it's all applied on these principles. Once your mind is made up, you start putting out these affirmations and writing down the goals and reprogramming your mind and taking control of your thoughts and putting out good and doing the work and taking the steps. And you have faith. I mean, you have this faith of knowing that somehow that next brick is going to be laid on the path for you, that you're going to go forward because you were able to break through that fear of success and then you were longing and hungering for success, but you included others along the way. So I know on your path, you found ways to incorporate the talents and strengths of others, even if you may not have had them and you were, quote, the boss. So how did you balance your ego as you were going through this? You were the boss, you were the driving force, but you had this team. How did you learn along that way, not just about financials and P&Ls and balance sheets, which you had to get masterful about, but where did your strength of of building leadership teams and people letting them flourish come along the way on that path. You know, it's interesting. One of the things I made a point of doing is knowing every employee's name. A simple action like that, knowing each person's name, knowing things about that individual team member's family. Very powerful, powerful principle. How many people have worked at a company and they feel that the boss doesn't even know who they are? Right, right. I tried to really value and they are them. I was only as good as my team. And so I always tried to keep an open mind, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, the acronym HOW, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And whether the idea came from the janitor at the company or came from an executive at the company, if it was a good idea, we grabbed onto those ideas and implemented that. There's another great acronym, recognize a principle. It's called RRAA, recognize a principle, relate it to yourself, then assimilate the principle. And most importantly, Steve, apply, apply. Mm. And now you'll fumble, you'll make mistakes. That's okay. The only way to really grow is to, if you think about it, I used to be so filled with fear that I wouldn't try anything Mm -hmm. because I was afraid of looking bad. Well, it's okay to look bad. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay when somebody asked a question and I didn't have the answer, instead of blowing smoke, say, that's a very good question. I don't have the answer for that, but let me get back to you tomorrow and I'll do some research. 
just being authentic and open-minded. And also, Steve, it's important to have a vision of where you're going. And I had an affirmation, which I communicated to all my team. We're going to be the first alternative price point promotionally branded. And what we sold were ink and laser cartridges. And we competed with Hewlett Packard, Lexmark, Epson, all the major printer manufacturers. And we had a compatible and it was branded and we were a hip and cool brand. And we built a wonderful company and we shared that success with all the team members because they're the ones that put me on the map. Jerry Shamalas was serving them. That's powerful. Well, so many, again, golden nuggets there. The how, honest, open-mindedness and willing, acronym for how, and then you allowed that to open up to possibilities no matter where it came from. And it opened up your thought. I'm sure people saw you were vulnerable, but yet you were still in charge. And then the other one you shared, R-R-R-A. R-R-A-A, recognize, relate, assimilate, and apply. Got it. Thank you. We're going to make sure those are in the show notes because those are great, great acronyms. And again, stuff that we can all apply in many ways. So talk to me about during this path, you came from very modest to no means. You are a young man that started in diction. You got through that place. You started then learning that you had a mind that was pretty strong and you were this giant within that was starting not just to be within, but you were starting to see that in the business world. You sold this company. You started having some wealth. How did you assimilate when you talk about the fear of success? How did you start assimilating the love or fear of money when you started Mm -hmm. having some even maybe more than Mm -hmm. you ever thought you might? have. How did you assimilate that into uh, recognize, relate, assimilate, and apply in the financial space since you didn't come from money, uh, but you Mm -hmm. created an opportunity to have some? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, uh, We don't really talk about money that much uh, because it's considered uh, a little bit taboo to talk about it. But let's face it, money is very important, uh, especially if you don't have any. If you don't have any, it becomes the most important thing in the world. And growing up without uh, resources made me highly motivational. It it, it motivated me in a big way to want to uh, create financial security. So one of the ways I've dealt with it as I've moved up the food chain financially, Steve, is I give the credit to the big amigo. The big amigo is the infinite intelligence, what runs this universe. And I try to be the best version of Jerry Shamalas I can be. And I have to do my part. Life is habit habit. And you have to build those solid habits. My foster mother, Lucille Crandall, told me when I was a little boy, just remember, Jerry, life is habit. And if you can take your negative habits, turn them into positive habits, and it's very it's very easy to get off track with habits. So you have to be vigilant. You have to stay on your, your daily program of exercise, meditation, being of service, helping others, and get these into your wiring, into your DNA, and you'll be lifted up and, and achieve things that perhaps you never thought you could achieve. I mean, I really, the credit to that infinite intelligence, and I, instead of saying I'm doing it, I'm doing my part. I'm doing the footwork. I'm learning every day. I'm keeping an open mind. I'm applying the success principles outlined in success through a positive mental attitude. I must discipline my mind to be positive. It's very easy for me to go into melancholy, to go into darkness. That's because of, I think, my early life. It's always in the wings ready to assert itself, Steve. So I'm very aggressive every day on programming my mind and staying in the solution and dealing with some of the hurt and trauma that I had as a child because life is difficult. The first sentence in uh, Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled, is life is difficult. It is difficult. It's challenging. It's hard. It's hard work. So I learned how to deal with money by affirming that I deserve to be successful. 
this there's an infinite intelligence out there and there's infinite prosperity. And I think to be poor is not something that we were meant to be. I think we were meant to be part of this wonderfully prosperous world that we live in. And so relating to money in a positive way is something that takes time and effort and footwork to inventory. If you have a negative attitude about money, you must obliterate that from your consciousness and learn to embrace prosperity because prosperity is what I believe the big amigo, the infinite intelligence wants for all his children. So powerful. So, so powerful. The big amigo, whether you're calling that the big amigo, whether you call that universe, mother nature, God, Yahweh, just having that belief in something higher than yourself, as Jerry's talking about, is so key because that universal intelligence is really what we're tapping into to be able to create these lives that we want through using some of these principles. And just like we get the concept that we have to use a Wi-Fi signal sometimes to get connected on our phones to data or to information, the biggest Wi-Fi signal is from what Jerry's talking about, our thought, our words, our actions, our deeds, and connecting to the source of where that's coming from in the first place, uh, a collective consciousness in the universe. And so the big amigo, I believe, as Jerry does, that wants us to be abundant on this planet, not just in love, which is crucial and the most important asset, but also in money and wealth and opportunities to share that with others and make a difference. And by following these principles that Jerry's talking about, he's giving you a map here that, again, took himself from being a foster child and a homeless person to becoming a serial entrepreneur and an Academy Award-winning producer, which we're getting into a few minutes. So these principles work. And for Jerry to say, if I can do this, you can do this. And it's easy if you were just jumping on the podcast to say, well, yeah, well, he's an Academy Award producer. If you didn't hear all the other places he came from to overcome to get to where he's at. So the universe doesn't see race. It doesn't see status. It doesn't care where you were born, what country you're in. It doesn't care if you have a few less fingers or body parts or not. We all have the opportunity to tap into this energy and create the life that we are meant to leave in our own destination on the planet. So thanks for all those golden nuggets, Jerry. We only have two minutes left here, but I want to do a little teaser for everybody and go into coming back and talking about some of the cool work that you've done in so many ways. But one of them, it's, I'm sure you get a lot of buzz around, is getting into film and meeting celebrities and being a producer and being involved in telling wonderful stories. Um, when was the first time you went from, okay, I'm going to help build RhinoTech and I'm going to become this great successful entrepreneur to, hmm, I think I'm going to produce a, a film. Where did that transition come from? And then the Irish uh, Irishman came about, which we're going to talk about at the break. But tell me about that transition of these thoughts led to the first day you thought, hmm, producer. Do you know, it's a great question because I've always loved movies, Steve. I've always loved great storytelling. In fact, when we had the company RhinoTech Computer Products, every Friday, I would take out our sales managers and we'd go to Westwood, California, where they would have the openings of the movies out here in Los Angeles. Uh, back in the day before streaming, we used to go to the movie theaters and the openings were right in Westwood, California. So I would take my team to see like uh, Lethal Weapon, which was a fantastic fantastic action movie and all these. And so I always loved movies. And I thought one day I would really love to produce a movie. So it was a seed of a thought that grew over time. And when we get into the next segment, I'll be happy to share with you the serendipitous things that happened that enabled me to produce what I'm very proud to be involved in, The Irishman, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring uh, these wonderful artists, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci. The screenplay was by the great Steve Zalian, who won the Academy Award for Schindler's List. Now, how does a guy with my background step into the world of cinema 
with those greats. And when we come back after the break, I'll, I'll share with you uh, how my wife introduced me to the book, which became The Irishman. And it's a magical story. Oh, that is a magical story. Talk about going right into the deep end of the pool at the highest level. We got to hear about this. So I am dying to get back from this segment myself. So come back, please, and listen to Jerry Shamalas talking about his path of journey. But we're going to hear about The Irishman. We're going to hear about Robert De Niro and Pacino and all of the cool things he's doing. So we'll be right back in just a few minutes on the Alchemy of Business show. Hello, and thank you for either listening back in or viewing back in on the Alchemy of Business show. However you got here, I am glad you here are here today. We are talking with Mr. Jerry Shamalis. Uh, it's been a thrilling couple segments. I mean, Jerry is just a master of the power of thought, the power of manifestation, think and grow rich principles, overcoming obstacles, going from a foster kid to becoming what we're getting ready to talk about, an Academy Award-winning producer. So, uh, Jerry, we left off on this. I was asking you before the break, how did you go from this thought about being a businessman to then, I want to be a movie producer. And you mentioned that you're telling us about your wife was involved in this thought and that you had this manifestation of these, you loved movies as a kid, but you didn't just produce a movie. I mean, you went into, I mean, how many people can say they've even had even been to the Academy Awards, let alone one numerous ones and been with these icons. So let's talk about that manifestation period of time. Well, it's a wonderful question. I've been married to a beautiful woman who's been an extraordinary teacher and partner, my wife, Kathleen Shamalis. And we have a home in New York City. It was always my dream to have a home in New York. So we have a beautiful home on Fifth Avenue in New York City. And we have a home in Sun Valley, Idaho, which, by the way, Sun Valley was the first destination ski resort in America. And uh, we've had that home. It was, by the way, owned by Steve McQueen. Oh, yeah. And uh, we talk about faith, Steve. We bought that house 35 years ago. I just started out in business. We had bought a home in uh, Brentwood, Los Angeles, and then uh, we wanted to get a second home. And I'll never forget, we were driving by this beautiful, looked like a little gingerbread cabin, five acres on the river in Sun Valley, Idaho. And I asked the realtor, what's that? Is that for sale? He said, yeah, that's the Steve McQueen last chance ranch. Oh my! I goodness. said, wow, what's that going for? He said, it's a million dollars. We said, well, we can't afford that. Uh, we had a budget of 350000 Anyway, he called back six months later and he said, Jerry, the Steve McQueen's children decided to sell the property oh and God. it was at a price that we could afford. And we knew that somebody was going to make an offer on it that day. He was just going through the uh, his address book. And I said, well, just a minute. I said, Kath, we, we have to act right now. If we don't buy this place, somebody else is going to buy it. So we bought that sight unseen. I said to the realtor, what's it going to take? He said, send me a earnest money check. I said, tie it up, put it in escrow. <laughs> we bought that place sight unseen, and we've had it for 35 years. In any event, my wife goes to the Sun Valley Writers Conference every year. They have a beautiful conference with writers from all over the world. And in 2006, she heard this wonderful speaker, a man by the name of Charles Brandt, who had written a book that solved the Jimmy Hoffa mystery. And she was so impressed with his talk that she decided to cancel her next seminar and go see his breakout session. So she heard him a second time and he had written a book called I Heard You Paint Houses. Mm. The title comes from when a mob guy whacks somebody, he paints the house, he splatters oh. blood on the wall. Okay. 
And so uh, this solved the Jimmy Hoffa mystery. And for those of you that are baby boomers, you remember Jimmy Hoffa, who was as famous as Elvis Presley in the 60s. And he disappeared. He disappeared in 1975, Steve. So she gave me a copy of the book. And through a miraculous meeting, we went over to the bookstore. I went to Cheryl, who I've known for many years. She has a chapter one bookstore. I went in and they were featuring the book, I Heard You Paint Houses in the Window. And I walked in. I said, Cheryl, I just read that book. I said, it's wonderful. She said, do you know the author, Charles Brand? I said, no. She said, he lives right here in Ketchum, Idaho. Just a minute. She had him on the speed dial and she called him. He picked up and she handed, she said, Charlie, there's somebody interested in your book. She handed me the phone. I said, Mr. Brand, I just read your book. It's magnificent. He said, where are you? I said, I'm at chapter one. He said, don't move. I'm coming over. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) So, so the author came over. We, he took a shine to me. I took a shine to him. I was looking for something to do. So I said, who's got the uh, option on this? It'd make a great movie. It solves a Jimmy Hoffa mystery. He said, we do. I said, you still have the I said I couldn't believe that no one had optioned it. Right, yeah. So I talked him into it, and that led to me getting a three-year option. And then I partnered up with Jane Rosenthal and Robert De Niro at Tribeca. They brought in Martin Scorsese, Steve Zalian. It took us twelve years to get that film made, even with all those great actors. Wow, what a journey it was, though. It was fantastic. Well, your your stuff early in the segment about persistence and the power of mind and the universal uh, big amigo being involved in that. You you obviously were on a passion. But even from going from that meeting, how do you get Robert De Niro involved from that? I mean, how did though, I mean, you, like you said, you learned along the way when you were becoming an entrepreneur, you hired a CFO, you went to learn about finance. So to be a producer, I mean, Hollywood is a whole different world. I know you live in Brentwood. You mentioned living next to Steve McQueen. I don't know we'll have time in this segment, but you also seem to buy houses by famous or infamous people because I know your Brentwood <laughs> house is right next door to where OJ Simpson lived, where they had, where it's not the murder happened, but it's where all the helicopters and you had just bought that house like the week or a month or two before, right? Something like that. Uh, That's right, Steve. I was in escrow on this home that we're in now, a beautiful home in Brentwood. It was my seven-year dream to buy in what they call Brentwood Park. It's one of the nicest areas in Los Angeles. I'll never forget it, Steve. I'm a four-week, I made an offer. The seller countered. I accepted it. We had a 30-day escrow. And two weeks into the escrow, I said to the real estate agent, I said, God, I'd like to meet my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? She said, OJ Simpson. I said, OJ, well, let me give him a call. She gave me his number. I gave him a a call. He didn't pick up. I left a voicemail. Hi, this is Jerry Shamalas. I'm your new neighbor. I wanted to introduce myself. Hung up the phone. That was on a Friday, Steve. Two days later on Sunday, the tragedy happened. Wow. Now, all of a sudden, we have helicopters. Every news agency in the... My wife and I said, oh, my God, should we go through with this? And we said, well, nothing... Nothing happened on Rockingham. It all happened on uh, Bundy. So we powered through and closed. But that was a very, very surreal experience going through that. It's crazy. You have definitely lived your own movie. Are they doing the Jerry (laughs) Shamalas movie soon? I hope that that's coming. Anyway, let's go. That's amazing. Let's go back to the Irishman. So you meet the writer of the book. You realize who's got the options. But then you start putting out the feelers. Did you just use your skills that you had learned to build a company to then figure out how to break into Hollywood to get to the top of the echelon of not only actors, but all the other people that got it? Were those same principles reduplicated? Or did you have to learn a new language and new skills on that path? You know, I felt that I believed as I was shepherding this project, The Irishman, from the book I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt, I believed that it was born under a lucky star. I had this feeling 
that it warranted the best of the best. So I went out to the studios and was rejected. And then I have a friend of mine that our interior designer for our home here in Brentwood does a lot of Hollywood people's homes. And she introduced me to this wonderful couple, Jake Bloom, who's an iconic entertainment attorney in Los Angeles, and his wife, Ruth, and they became friends of ours. So I had a year and a half left on the option, and I said, boy, I better take this over to Jake and see what he says. So I went over, I made an appointment at his office in Beverly Hills. I said, I've got this great project, and I spent an hour with him. He said, Jerry, if Charlie hits it with the script, I was having the author of the book write the script. He said, I can sell it to Jerry Bruckheimer. I can sell it to Graham King. These are all iconic producers. Let's see how he does with the script. And two days after that meeting, he got a call from Robert De Niro and they were discussing a matter. And out of the blue, Robert De Niro said, yeah, Jake, we're trying to find out who has the movie rights to the book. I heard you paint houses. Jake (laughs) (laughs) responded, my my client, Jerry Shamalas. I went from friend to client in a nanosecond. (laughs) And uh, so he, uh, being the iconic lawyer that he is, I think at that moment, Steve, it was like a shot of adrenaline and verification in Bob De Niro's mind that, wow, this, if it's a Jake Bloom client, it must be, it really affirmed his instincts on the project. And so I partnered up with uh, Jane Rosenthal. I I look at Jane as one of the greatest producers and a fabulous person there. One of the things I learned in working at this level in in cinema with all these great artists, they're the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. They have just, they were just wonderful quality people. I was very much included in the readings and on the set. They were just fantastic. Fantastic. So I was introduced at an echelon, Steve, where I didn't have to claw up through the uh, typical Hollywood ladder. And I came in through the side door. And I am so grateful. Wow. So So grateful. Well, again, it goes back to some of these principles that you followed. I think when you realized you had this sleeping giant and then you unleashed the giant and you let go of your fear of success and you believed you were worthy and you believed that the big amigo had plans, you took all the boundaries off. I mean, and you didn't even know exactly how that was going to be, but you just kept getting green light after green light after green light. And then you kept following through with it. So your principles led you into these different worlds that most people never get to enter. And like you said, you came into another door that the universe said, hey, yeah, some people usually go this route, but we're going to take Jerry in through this door and make it magically happen for you. And I don't think it was out of the blue at all. I think it was it was when that, that happened, it was divine destiny uh, for you to be involved in bringing that to light. So how was it meeting some of these icons? I mean, you talk about De Niro and Pacino and I mean, some of the, the Scorsese, these are like the icons. That, what was it like? Were you starstruck? Were you uh, tongue-tied? Were you, did you feel comfortable? I know that you've got experiences with meeting many of these icons obviously in producing the film. You know, these people were so nice and I was so grateful. I was pinching my wife and I to go on the red carpet, to go out to the movie set. I'll never forget Jane Rosenthal introduced me to one of the team members on the set. And she said, this is uh, Jerry and Kathleen Shamalas. They're the original rights holder of the material. And the gentleman said, gee, thank you for my job. And I looked at him, I said, well, 
That's very kind of you to say, but it was the team and it was the people. And I always had this belief that this project was born under a lucky star. And that's the power of belief. Even though we had a lot of headwinds, Paramount was involved in the film. Then they backed out. Thank goodness for Netflix, because this was a major project for Netflix. And we went to Netflix and they immediately greenlit the project and put $125 million and said, go ahead, Marty uh, Scorsese, make the movie that you want to make. They didn't interfere. They were phenomenal partners. So once this all came together, it was just fantastic how the synchronicity, the incredible people involved, the great artists, and we played a small part in that we were easy to do business with. I told Jake Bloom, my attorney, whatever it takes, let's partner up with Jane Rosenthal and Bob De Niro. Let's not push too hard. But he put together a deal for me like like I was a, a Graham King. I had a back end. I had a point. <laughs> Bob De Niro and Martin Scorsese had to give up uh, a half a point because I had a point on the gross. I mean, he put together a phenomenal pack. Package. And then we ended up fortunately doing the film with uh, with Netflix. But to your point, uh, there was always a belief that this was going to work out. And with the other film that we won the Academy Award for, If Anything Happens, I Love You, uh, which is an anti-gun movie. And I'm very proud of that film as well. And it's going forward with faith and taking those actions every day and pushing forward and staying out of my own way and doing what needs to get done day in and day out. And eventually, if you're fortunate enough, I, there was a lot of luck involved in this, but you know the old saying, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah, luck favors the prepared mind, no doubt. Well, you have a lot of luck more coming your way because you are a prepared mind and you do the work. And for those of you that can't see the screen, we're going to have these links in the show notes, not only to the movie, but to the, uh, the you didn't get to see these pictures, but you've got uh, uh, Jerry and his wife here with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and Jamie Lee Curtis and just the different uh, people looking very happy and, and joyous in this success. So the the movie, If Anything Happens, I Love You, that is also able to be, where can people access that film? Both films, The Irishman and the animated short, If Anything Happens, we won the Academy Award for If Anything Happens, I Love You. They're both available on the wonderful platform, Netflix. Wonderful. So Netflix, which we all have access to or do, uh, uh, definitely make sure you check this out. We'll have the, the link in the show notes. And as we're coming into the last few minutes here, which I can't believe our time is almost up because Jerry, you and I, even when we weren't doing this interview and we're talking before, we could go on for hours because we have so much like-minded uh, concept here about how we live our life. So you talked about the big amigo and it's coming into the end of the show. We're going to make sure people have access to, if you want to learn more about Jerry, we're going to have in the show notes, his LinkedIn page, uh, his Facebook and, and how to reach more about Jerry on his got a great Wikipedia page. But you and I have talked about uh, the importance of spirituality and higher purpose, whether it's in recovery or just in life. So as we're wrapping up the show, I always like to ask people about their belief. And you've already actually preempted this because you talk about it so much freely throughout because it's part of who you are. But spiritual intelligence of tying this into these principles, whether it's think and grow rich, daily practices, the way we live our life within our families, within our community, all the great work that you do. Give me a little bit uh, as we're closing out here about your definition of spiritual spirituality and how you are evolving even more in spirituality if you are in these later years of your life versus the early years? Well, wonderful question. I believe that there exists, Steve, a mystic power that can transform your life so thoroughly, so completely, so radically that when this process is completed or underway, your own family and friends will have difficulty recognizing you. And this power is available to all of us. And I access this power through 
meditation, through service, through trying to help others, people that are less fortunate. I remember when I was struggling with my business, I would listen to inspirational voices in my car on the way to the office so that I could fine tune my mind to get out of fear and get out of negativity. I would often listen to the Winston Churchill wartime speeches if I was particularly in a melancholy state to realize that all things are possible and that you have to lean in to these spiritual principles, lean into the light and take that action. Let's not forget that 97% of spirituality is practicality. Mm. It's doing the next indicated right action. We have to have our feet firmly on the ground, even if we're thinking in the ethereal spaces. And so I love the name of your podcast, Alchemy. That's about transformation. That's about turning a lower metal into gold or platinum. And uh, we all have this capacity, the plasticity of the human mind. This has been scientifically proven that no matter what your age, it's never too late to change and to grow and to build new habits. So spirituality to me is that mystical force that's available to all of us. Wow. What a great way to wrap the show. I couldn't even have given you a script if I was your producer and director to have directed that any better because it just flows out of you, Jerry. So thank you. So for all of you that were listening in today for the Alchemy of Business, lean into the light. As Jerry was saying, this is possible for all of us to tap into this higher energy, no matter where you are in your life, at what level of success. There is more you can give. There is more you can do. There is more that you contribute. There is more you can serve. There are more that you can inspire. And in this being of value to others, as Jerry lives his life so doing, uh, is a great example for all of us about this importance. So Jerry, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for all of the amazing stories today. And it went way too fast, but you've been an amazing guest. And we'd love to have you back again because you've got so many golden nuggets to share. I know our audience will benefit. So many blessings and thank you. Thank you so much. It was a delight to be with you, Steve. Thank you, everyone. And we will be back again on the Alchemy of Business show. And we will have more guests that are thought leaders, CEOs, executives, and people that are doing purpose-driven things in their lives, just like our guest today, Mr. Jerry Shamalis. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. And that concludes this episode of The Alchemy of Business with your host, Steve Rogers. If you found value in today's broadcast, please consider liking, subscribing, sharing with friends, and leaving a review. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next Thursday for another episode. Be blessed and see you soon.